0: Right. Okay, once again, welcome to the Middle East 101 Lecture Series 2023. This lecture series gives you a comprehensive overview of the Middle East region and its impacts on Singapore and the world. Today's lecture is the third in this series in which we focus on Israel and Turkey. And this lecture will be presented by my colleague, Dr. John Loup Saman. I'll be the moderator for the day. Since this lecture is being conducted both in-person and online via Zoom, once we enter the question and answer round, the participants physically present here in the room may raise their hands to ask questions and wait for the mic to come. The online participants may send in their questions to the event team through the Zoom chat box. Let me now briefly introduce today's presenter, Dr. John Lou Saman is a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute, specializing in Middle East strategic affairs with a particular focus on the Israel Hezbollah conflict and the evolution of the Gulf security system. Prior to joining MEI, he held various positions in the policy sector. He worked as a visiting scholar with the RAND Corporation from 2007 to eight, and as an advisor at the directorate for strategic affairs of the French Ministry of Defense from 2008 to 11. He then gained extensive experience in the domain of military education and training. First, as a deputy director for the Middle East faculty for the NATO Defense College from 2011 to 16, and as an associate professor in strategic studies with the UAE National Defense College from 16 to 2021. Dr. Saman is a highly accomplished author with numerous impactful publications on the Middle East, and his latest book, published this year by I.B. Torres, has been well-received by the strategic community. The title of this must-read book is New Military Strategies in the Gulf, The Mirage of Autonomy in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar.
1: With this, I hand over the floor to John Lu, please. A very kind uh, introduction. Um, so. As, as you mentioned, this is the third lecture, and uh, we we discussed last week uh, the, um, the policies of Iran uh, in the region and to, uh, to discuss how Iran, uh, as a regional player, uh, is able uh, to shape uh, the politics, the disputes in the area. Uh, we're going to continue on that uh, theme with two countries, and uh, as you can see on the the slide, the first slide, the the title uh, is non-Arab regional powerhouse. So the uh, the idea was to look at those two countries, Israel and Turkey, uh, and how they uh, also matter in terms of regional uh, policies with uh, the Arab world, but also uh, with external players, uh, and in particular uh, the US uh, as well as China. Uh, so discussing two countries at the same time Uh, so discussing two two countries can be challenging uh, in a sense that uh, i'm not going to assume that these are two countries which are identical so what we're going to do uh, here are basically four uh, things first to uh, uh, understand the political systems uh, in both countries um, again, uh, given the time constraint, uh, I'm not going to pretend to uh, give you the full details of uh, the the way both countries uh, operate at the political level, but to see uh, what is the nature of their political systems. Uh, then, after that, looking at the foreign policy orientations of these two countries, uh, what are the key principles, the key objectives which are assigned uh, to their foreign policies. After that, I'll look at the bilateral relationship, uh, and this is something that has been uh, evolving uh, remarkably in the last two years. So we are, at I would say, at a, an interesting time uh, to discuss Israel-Turkey uh, relations. And finally, to look at Israel-Turkey in the New Middle East. And when we talk about the New Middle East, this is something that you'll see uh, in other lectures during the semester, uh, what we characterize as this combination of new great power competition in the area between US, China, as well as these new ambitions for regional actors such as the Gulf states, Iran, uh, and Israel. So that is uh, the program uh, more or less for the next uh, 40, 45 minutes. Uh, Uh, So, as I said, we'll start with the politics in both countries. And to understand politics in those two countries, it's worth uh, exploring five aspects, national identity, political system, political leadership, economic environment and security priorities. And you'll see that we have here some interesting similarities as well as differences. Uh, In terms of national identity, we have here uh, two uh, democracies. Uh, So uh, the current uh, system of uh, Turkey was established in 1923. Uh, As you uh, know from history, this uh, followed the fall of the uh, Ottoman Empire with the creation of the Republic uh, of Turkey. Uh, the founding father of the Republic of Turkey, being on this picture uh, uh, at the bottom, uh, Mustafa Kemal, uh, also known as Atatürk, and as the first president of Turkey, Atatürk uh, had uh, created uh, a specific identity, which was first secular. The idea was that Turkey would uh, make it uh, would explicitly. Uh, create this division between state and religion, so a secular uh, country, as well as a parliamentary republic. Uh, The inspiration, uh, among others, uh, for Mustafa Kemal uh, was the French Third Republic uh, of the late uh, 19th century. Uh, What's interesting for us is that when... Mustafa Kemal created uh, in the 20s the um, Turkish Republic. There was one uh, 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 one Jewish leader uh, who was uh, very influenced by uh, Kemal, and that was David Ben-Gurion, who is here on the picture at the top. David Ben-Gurion, who would later become the first Prime Minister of Israel, lived in Istanbul for a few years and was actually inspired by the Turkish model. He considered that the Turkish Republic could be inspiration for what could be one day uh, modern Israel. So again uh, you here uh, have the idea of secularism. That's something we'll uh, go back go back probably later but initially Israel just like Turkey was created as a secular, Uh, country. It doesn't mean that religion was out of the picture. Uh, In both both cases, uh, Islam for Turkey or uh, um, Judaism for Israel were very important in shaping the identity. But in terms of the political system, this uh, was uh, made uh, uh, as a division. So that's uh, the first uh, element, this idea of uh, uh, national Uh, identity in both countries. Also, another important element I mentioned uh, modern Israel, uh, behind David Ben-Gurion on that picture, you can see uh, uh, the picture of uh, the founding father of Zionism. So Theodor Herzl, who was the first leader of the Zionist uh, movement in uh, the the late uh, 19th century, early uh, 20th uh, century. Uh, so that is for the the national identity. Now, this leads us to uh, uh, discuss the political system in both countries. As I said, uh, we have here two democracies. And I'm sure some of you are already thinking, well, these are not uh, perfect democracies. Uh, and that's uh, probably one of the similarities which is the most interesting to discuss. Uh, Turkey started uh, as a republic, uh, but very quickly, the military had a strong role, uh, in part because Mustafa Kemal was coming uh, from the military, Uh, but the military played a major role in uh, Turkish politics, with several uh, coups happening uh, during the following decades. Uh, That led to the idea that Turkey was uh, not uh, really a democracy, that even though you had uh, elections, uh, those were heavily uh, pressured or constrained by uh, the military. Uh, in Israel, the situation was also uh, was also difficult for uh, other reasons which related to uh, the way the Israeli political system integrated or not its Arab minority. Uh, the Arab minority that had uh, been uh, staying in Israel since the founding of the country. Uh, So this is why, for many political scientists, they tend to qualify both countries as illiberal uh, democracies, meaning that these are democracies, but in some aspects uh, you you see some uh, elements that deny basic uh, notions of democracy. This this is even more uh, uh, the case in the fa- in the last, I'd say, five, ten years in both countries. First, in, in Turkey, uh, you had an evolution of the system uh, with a major reform in 2018. Initially, Turkey was a parliamentary system. It now moved to a presidential system. Uh, with the decision of uh, uh, President Erdogan, who's here on the picture, and I'll come back to him in a few minutes, uh, to strengthen the power of the presidency, uh, many critics say that this is uh, this is mostly to uh, uh, to weaken any forms of checks and balances against his own. Uh, presidency. And that is uh, the reason there has been uh, concerns about the future of democracy uh, in Turkey. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we've seen in, in uh, Turkey uh, severe restrictions on uh, freedom of expression. Uh, a lot of the independent uh, uh, media newspapers uh, have either closed or uh, have seen uh, their, uh, their their means, their resources, shrinking. Uh, in Israel, this is less the case, at least uh, for the moment, uh, but what we've seen with the new government, so you have a new government uh, which uh, started last January with Prime Minister Netanyahu, with a major reform uh, targeting the judicial uh, system. Uh, So this is a reform that explains what you see in the streets right now. Uh, You have people uh, from uh, all backgrounds, either from the tech industry, from uh, the the reservists going into the streets protesting, because there is the fear that the current reform uh, will challenge the rule of law uh, in Israel. There is the fear that this is going against basic principles of having the judiciary uh, power, uh, checking uh, the the power of the prime minister and the government more generally. So we see here also some very uh, critical questions on the the nature of the political system uh, in Israel. Uh, This leads to the, the third point, political leadership, because for more or less the last two decades, it's impossible to talk about Turkish and Israeli politics without considering two uh, leaders uh, that that arguably are, are among the most important ones in the history of these countries. Uh, you have here on the picture uh, President Erdogan in the case of Turkey. Uh, he has been in power for the last 20 years without any interruption. So he was... First elected as prime minister from 2003 to 2014, and since then as president. And that's the, when it started becoming the president, that's the moment he implemented a reform to strengthen the position of the presidency. Uh, in the case of Ben Yamin Netanyahu, that's also the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel. He uh, first uh, was prime minister between 1996 and 1999, and then uh, a a second time uh, for 12 years uh, between 2009 and 2021. And finally, uh, we saw him coming back to power, despite many uh, uh, scenarios or many speculations that he was uh, over. He came back to power last uh, December uh what's interesting in comparing both uh, leaders is that you see some similarities uh both came with uh major ambitions to uh, modernize the economy of both countries and they were actually successful at least in the first years in both cases uh to uh, modernize the, the the economies of the countries to turn them uh into uh, significant powerhouses, uh, not just in the Middle East, but uh, within the OECD. But they also uh, uh, targeted uh, any dissent. Uh, so they personalized power. Uh, they create created uh, a system uh, of uh, uh, elite uh, that's uh, dependent on them. Uh, and they are, in a way, the... the most responsible leaders for this trend towards illiberal uh, illiberalism uh, in both countries. So that is uh, for political leadership. Let me now turn to uh, the economic environment. As I said, uh, both countries uh, both countries uh, represent uh, major economies, not just in the Middle East uh, region, uh, but more broadly. Uh, we've seen. Uh, how uh, both countries are uh, perceived as uh, important economies. These are the two only Middle East countries which are part of the OECD. Uh, And you probably know uh, already the reputation of Israel as the startup nation. Uh, Israel is uh, one of the uh, is after the U.S. the country with the the biggest number of uh, unicorns? Uh, so this is a uh, this has become part of the uh, the national uh, economic environment. The the tech industry uh, is an element of national pride in Israel. Uh, but there are some uh, some questions that come also with this uh, economic environment. Uh, mostly in the case of Turkey, uh, we've seen uh, since two years ago uh, a major financial uh, crisis in Turkey with the, the collapse of the currency, uh, which, in a in a way, uh, put an end to uh, uh, two decades of uh, of major growth uh, in uh, in Turkey. So that actually challenged the. Uh, the legacy of Erdogan uh, at the economic level. Uh, When it comes to to Israel, the issue is different in a sense that you have now a a kind of two economies at the same time. You have the tech economy, uh, which represents uh, a major element of wealth, of income. Uh, But the rest of the society which does not really benefit from that tech uh, industry. That tech industry is actually uh, cl- more integrated into uh, the um, the economy of California, in a sense. Uh, the rest of the population suffers, in a way, from the cost of living. Uh, Tel Aviv competes with Singapore for being the, the most expensive city on Earth. Uh, and this is, uh, in in many ways, uh, something that explains also the uh, the current uh, divide within the country, uh, because you will see a, a lot of the people uh, from the startup uh, industry uh, being, uh, let's say, from a secular uh, background, uh, usually living in Tel Aviv or in Tel Aviv area. And those that are more into traditional, more Middle Eastern uh, economy uh, will uh, will be more from a religious background and usually tend to uh, vote uh, for the right. Uh, if I summarize very quickly uh, this uh, divide, but you see here how there's a kind of alignment between the the politics, the identity, and the uh, the uh, the economic situation. Uh, let me now move to the security priorities uh, because. These are two countries in the Middle East, so uh, they have uh, security uh, priorities which are at the top of their agenda. And both both countries uh, would put terrorism at the top of their uh, security priorities with different actors in both cases. Uh, in the case of Israel, uh, you can see at the bottom here, uh, uh fighters from hamas so uh for those of you who are may not may not be familiar with hamas hamas is an organization an offshoot of the muslim brotherhood uh in palestinian territories that was established in 1988 so during the first intifada uh, they operate mainly in the gaza strip uh, but also have a presence uh, in the west bank uh Hamas is uh, today the biggest military actor uh, on the Palestinian side, uh, and in particular, uh, due to its arsenal of rockets. So, anytime you have a conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas, and we've seen four uh, four conflicts, um, four major conflicts between uh, Israel and Hamas since 2008. So if you do the math, it's more or less uh, one conflict every three, four years. Uh, Anytime you have this, you have a wave of rockets that now are able to uh, uh, target uh, any major city in uh, in Israel. So uh, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, which is in the north. And we're talking about, for instance, uh, a hundred of rockets which are fired uh, in less than five minutes. So, this has uh, become a major uh, issue at the security level. Uh, let me show you on the next uh, slide uh, the the map, just to uh, give you an idea, uh, because you can see here, and due to the time constraint, I'm not going to uh, give you all the details of the history of Israel-Arab conflict, but to understand the situation, the conflict with Hamas, it, it's necessary to go back to 1967 with the war. Uh, you see here on the two maps uh, on the, the the right, the the situation before 67 and the situation after. Basically, uh, the current state of Israel politics with the Palestinians is still heavily influenced by the military victory of 1967. Uh, The fact that uh, after that, uh, Israel occupied uh, Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. That was a decision made by Ariel Sharon. Uh, And since then, uh, Hamas uh, took power. Uh, You can see here uh, on uh, the, the the, the maps how small Gaza is but also the proximity uh, this this is uh the reason also why uh, it doesn't take uh, uh, too much uh, of a rocket for Hamas to be able to reach uh, Israel uh, with a, a rocket that is able uh, to uh, fly uh, to uh, up to uh, 10 15 kilometers you can, you can reach uh, big cities uh, in Israel. So that is uh, uh, for the situation, the security situation for Israel. With regards to Turkey, and I'll just go to the previous slide. Uh, you see on the top uh, the Kurdish uh, Workers Party, the uh, PKK, which is uh, for for Turkish government the biggest security uh, threat. Uh, It is considered a terrorist organization. Uh, It was created in 1978. And until today, uh, despite several attempts at negotiation, uh, uh, there is kind of a war on terror uh, between Turkey and the PKK. What's making things even more complex is the the, the the Kurdish presence across the Middle East and I'll go because to understand to understand the the current state of uh Turkish Kurdish uh relations we also need to uh take into account that uh you have uh, a Kurdish presence uh in basically four uh four Middle Eastern countries Turkey Syria Iraq and Iran what's Making things complex is that you have cooperation, coordination between the PKK and some other uh, movements, for instance, the Syrian Kurdish organizations. During the war uh, against the Islamic State uh, in Syria, the U.S. coalition uh, decided to strengthen or to use the Syrian Kurdish forces as proxy and to uh, uh, provide them with military support. The Turkish government opposed that and actually uh, until today is in a major dispute with the U.S. on this issue because they consider that the Syrian Kurdish forces are allies of the PKK. So by extension, they consider that this is supporting terrorism against them. So that is uh, for the security uh, priorities. Let me move now to the next uh, slide, we'll now look at the foreign policy orientations of those countries. And here as well, you'll see some interesting similarities. These are two non-Arab Middle Eastern countries. And until today, their foreign policy has been primarily anchored into the Western orbit for two main reasons. First, uh, with regards to Turkey, Turkey is a member state of NATO. This is uh, something that is sometimes forgotten, but Turkey is one of the oldest uh, members of NATO. It joined NATO in 1952, and as a result, uh, Turkey also hosts U.S. uh, military base inside Turkey. Not only does Turkey uh, have U.S. soldiers on its territory, it also hosts US nuclear weapons. That's a very important element, uh, because that that is a relic uh, of the Cold War. At that time, it was uh, mostly to deter uh, the USSR. But until today, uh, this is an, el- an important element. Uh, This, in a way, is opposed by some parts of the public opinion, uh, especially the more conservative, more traditional Turks that uh, uh, have a negative view of uh, the U.S. But despite all the tensions between Erdogan and the U.S. uh, governments, uh, Turkey has been uh, has not uh, challenged that presence, this uh, U.S. military presence, and has not challenged at all its membership of NATO. It's important to keep in mind that any decision within NATO is taken by consensus. So Turkey, like any other country uh, member of NATO, can oppose any decision. And it did that recently when Sweden wanted to join NATO, Uh, Turkey was able to threaten its veto. Eventually, uh, the U.S. administration uh, was able to uh, convince uh, the Turks to uh, accept um, uh, Sweden membership. But that tells you how uh, Turkey is an influential uh, member uh, of the uh, Atlantic Alliance. In the case of Israel, Israel is not a NATO country, but it does enjoy a a very strong and uh, arguably probably one of the strongest uh, military partnerships with the U.S. We discussed that during the first lecture uh, two weeks ago with the fact that Israel's security is probably the first and most important uh, priority for the U.S. in the Middle East, and until today, uh, you have uh, about 3 billion dollars uh, each year which is provided by the US taxpayers to Israel's uh, armed forces so this is quite uh, significant and this is the reason why despite all the 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 public uh discussions in both cases Israel and Turkey uh you have in both cases uh an important um proximity with the western uh, countries because this necessity uh in both cases they benefit a lot from their uh from that uh from that dimension uh let me now move to the second part which is the arab world and here it's also important to to see that both both countries have had Uh, difficult uh, relations uh, with the Arab world. Uh, It seems more obvious in the case of Israel. I'll go back to that in a minute. But even in the case of Turkey, uh, it's worth reminding that uh, Turkey, especially in the Middle East, especially in countries like Syria, Lebanon, uh, uh, is marked by the memory of the Ottoman Empire. If if you go into uh, if you read the the, the history textbooks uh, in the schools uh, in Lebanon in Syria, they heavily uh, talk about uh, the torture the, uh, that they suffered from uh, from the Ottoman Empire. In a way, if I'm using another analogy, it's similar to uh, Singaporean. Memories of Japan's uh, occupation, and until today, that that constrained uh, the ability of Turkey uh, uh, to play a major role in the Arab world. They uh, tried as much as possible to uh, uh, spread the Turkish model uh, of governance, especially using the, uh, the, uh, the 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 idea of sharing the same customs, the same religion. But we saw after the Arab Spring in 2011 that this reached uh, very quickly its limitations. There was also, uh, at a certain point, uh, an ambition from Turkey to create strong ties uh, with its uh, Arab neighbors. In particular, with Syria, you can see here uh, an old picture, uh, something that uh, is sometimes forgotten, but... Uh, uh, President Erdogan uh, and uh, his counterpart uh, from Syria, Bashar al-Assad, used actually to be close partners. Uh, before the war started, uh, uh, Erdogan uh, displayed his partnership, his even friendship. He, they, they, they actually uh, uh, went uh, for a short vacation uh, with uh, their spouses uh, together. So that was before the war and before... Uh, both countries uh, found themselves uh, on the opposite sides. Uh, this also tells us the, uh, the difficult uh, difficulties of uh, Turkey in building that uh, Arab policy. In the Gulf, uh, that was also uh, quite challenging. Turkey has close ties to Qatar. Uh, and Qatar uh, opened a Turkish military base in 2014, uh, the first uh, one since the end of the Ottoman Empire. But Turkey has also very difficult relations uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE. I'll come back to that uh, later. With regards to Israel, as I said, this is more obvious because the, the notion of the Jewish state uh, in uh, that territory that was uh, called Palestine uh, has been uh, uh, denied and uh, resisted uh, by the majority of the Arab countries until today. Uh, on the next slide, I'll you'll see here uh the situation as of today uh with regards to what are the Arab countries that formally recognize Israel and those that uh, have informal ties and those that have uh, no relations at all. Uh, What's interesting is that recently uh, we've seen a a major wave of what we call normalization. Uh, For a long time, the majority of Arab countries uh, just didn't recognize the the existence, uh, existence of Israel. That meant that there was no participation of Arab states uh, to any uh, diplomatic meeting involving Israel. But in recent years, we saw Morocco, we saw Sudan, we saw the UAE, we saw uh, uh, Bahrain, and possibly in coming years, Saudi Arabia uh, recognizing uh, Israel. That's a major, uh, major step. Uh, and that is the reason also why we talk about the new Middle East, because here uh, uh, this is uh, something that historically uh, will change uh, the way uh, we we think Israel's um, Israel's position in the Middle East. Let me move to the next slide, which looks at uh, the relations with Iran. Uh, And here, the relations are very different, uh, because in the case of uh, Israel, uh, Iran, uh, for the last two decades, has been uh, an existential threat. Uh, You see here uh, a a rather famous uh, picture uh, of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu going to the UN General Assembly and making the case with this cartoonish uh, picture that he has in his hands. Uh, uh, that uh, the Iranian nuclear program has to be stopped. Uh, Israel has been announcing that Iran would get nuclear weapons since the late uh, 90s. And since then, this has been, uh, for good or bad reasons, we can argue about that, but this has been seen as an existential threat. Uh, the fact that there have been statements from uh, former Iranian officials that they want to erase uh, uh, Israel, uh, there is uh, the vivid perception uh, across uh, the Israeli political community that uh, Iran has the potential and the intention to destroy, uh, to erase uh, the Israeli uh, project, the Israeli uh, nation. In the case of Turkey, uh, the relation is much more ambiguous, much more ambivalent. Uh, officially, there have been uh, uh, there have been talks, uh, there have been uh, ties with the, uh, with Iran, but at the same time, Turkey Turkey is again a member of NATO, uh, and a lot of what uh, NATO does in Turkey is actually uh, to protect uh, against Iranian uh, ballistic missiles. So there is the perception that uh, Turkey, on one hand, uh, will have this uh, public uh, diplomatic statement of having good relations uh, with Iran, and at the same time, militarily uh, uh, benefiting from uh, the presence of the U.S., uh, because there is the argument that the U.S. uh, military presence in Turkey uh, and in particular, the nuclear weapons is a perfect deterrence uh, against anything that Iran uh, may be tempting to do in the near future. So that is uh, uh, with regards to Iran. Finally, uh, uh, we we need to discuss the Asian element here. And both countries, just like uh, uh, the majority of the Middle Eastern, uh, countries uh, have embraced the growing presence uh, of uh, Asian uh, powers in the Middle East, in particular uh, uh, China, and in particular at the, the economic level. Uh, Turkey was uh, joined the, uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative formally, and Israel— uh, is uh, also a major recipient of uh, Chinese investments in the tech industry. Uh, Huawei has uh, one research and development center, the only one in the Middle East, which is located uh, in Israel. Uh, so there is a, a lot of investments uh, both in Turkey and uh, in, um, in, uh, in Israel coming uh, from China. Uh, in addition to that uh, Turkey has also uh has also maintained strong relations or let's say good relations with Russia especially in the military domain uh Turkey uh, despite uh, pressures from the U.S decided to buy a, a Russian air defense system uh, the s-400 uh keep in mind that This is a system that the the U.S. considers to be a threat and you have U.S. soldiers on the Turkish territory. As a result, the U.S. decided to uh, uh, cancel uh, the transfer of the F-35 to uh, Turkey. Uh, Turkey was uh, among the countries that uh, invested in the development of that uh, fighter jet. So this was a huge decision made uh, by the U.S. to um, to cancel the participation of Turkey in that program. Uh, so Asia, uh, broadly speaking, is uh, part of the uh, uh, of the foreign policy orientations of both countries. In the case of Israel, we could argue that uh, the country has been much more cautious in uh, uh, in trying to uh, maintain its distance from China. Uh, than uh, Turkey because of the U.S. pressures. Let me move to the third uh, point, and I'll have to go quicker because I realize uh, I'm taking much more uh, too much time uh, on the, the previous slides. Uh, the state of bilateral relations. Uh, interestingly, the, the two countries have had uh, uh, bilateral relations for a long time, starting in the 50s. Uh, Turkey was part of what Israel called its, its, its periphery doctrine back then. So the periphery doctrine in the 50s, which was designed by David Ben-Gurion, uh, could be summarized by the idea of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Israel was looking at the, the map of the Middle East, considering that it was surrounded by Arab countries that wanted its destruction. So Israel considered The only way uh, to uh, overcome that situation is to create strong ties with other countries, those countries which are at the periphery of the Arab world. And that's how they created good relations in the 50s with Turkey, with Iran under the Shah, and with Ethiopia, which at the time was considered as uh, a rival of of Egypt uh, under Nasser. This worked more or less uh, for several decades, except that there was what uh, historians call the mistress syndrome. Turkey, especially the the Turkish military, liked to have good relations with Israel uh, because they got access to the Israeli uh, military uh, uh, systems, they got access to Israeli military training, but they they were much more cautious when it came to public relations they didn't want to um, antagonize the arab world so usually at the the un general assembly turkey sided uh, with the arab countries uh, against uh, israel so you had turkey opposing israel for instance during the 67 uh, and 73 war but at the same time enjoying military cooperation uh that relation, however, uh, uh, reached uh, a moment of tension in 2010 when you had the crisis of the flotilla called the Mavi Marmara. This was an NGO uh, from Turkey uh, that tried to uh, uh, cross uh, the Mediterranean and to uh, reach the Gaza Strip. Now. At that time, until today, actually, you have a naval blockade of Gaza, which is uh, executed by the Israeli Navy. So the Israeli Navy refused uh, the access to the flotilla. Uh, The ship uh, tried as much as possible uh, to enter the water uh, of Gaza. Eventually, the Israeli Navy started firing and you had uh, people from the NGO getting killed. This led to a major diplomatic crisis, and after that, you had a decade of basic, uh, basic, uh, basically escalation between both sides, uh, with President Erdogan uh, repeatedly uh, condemning uh, Israel. This eventually came to an end in 2022, when both sides decided uh, to restore. Diplomatic relations—that—that uh, that is a, a important element. Uh, you had uh, until the until uh, last year uh, a major dispute, but now it seems to be uh, uh, this, to be a new chapter in the bilateral relation. There are several aspects uh, that explain uh, this. The, the importance of the bilateral relations at the moment. Uh, with regards to Israel, they consider that having good ties with uh, Turkey is actually a way for them to improve their intelligence uh, and their uh, assessment of the situation in Iran. Uh, for many years, uh, there has been the idea that uh, uh, through the relations with Turkey, Israel can improve its intelligence collection on Iran. There's also the uh, issue of Hamas. Until recently, Hamas had its uh, political office in Istanbul. Uh, You have here on the picture at the bottom uh, Ismail Haniyeh, who is one of the major leaders of uh, uh, Hamas, who lives uh, in Turkey. Uh, Israel hopes that with the new relations with Ankara, The Turkish government uh, will uh, basically reduce the presence of Hamas in uh, Turkey, and that uh, eventually this could actually weaken uh, the Palestinian organization. Finally, on the Turkish side, having good relations uh, with Israel is also important uh, because there's the idea seen from Ankara that having good relations with Israel helps to have good relations with uh, the US. And that's uh, one of the major motivations behind Erdogan's uh, decision to mend ties uh, with uh, Israel. Let me move to the fourth uh, and final uh, point of my lecture, which is Israel, Turkey in the new uh, Middle East. And I briefly mentioned uh, earlier the, uh, the wave of normalization that we saw between Israel and Arab countries. So I'll get into closer details here. This is uh, this started with uh, the Abraham Accord. So the Abraham Accord uh, was an agreement signed in September 2020. Uh, you see here the picture uh, at the White House, uh, so the time of President Trump. Uh, who was joined by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu with the foreign ministers of both Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. What's interesting is that following that uh, first agreement, two other Arab countries decided to normalize relations with Israel, Morocco, and Sudan. Uh, there have been speculations that other countries would join. Uh, at a certain point, there was uh, speculation regarding Oman. There was, There is bigger speculation at the moment uh, regarding Saudi Arabia. But as of today, uh, these are the only countries uh, that uh, sign agreements uh, with Israel, in addition to uh, previous agreements that had been signed uh, between Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and Mauritania. Uh, but what's interesting also with the Abraham Accords is the next slide: uh, the uh, the creation of new initiatives. Uh, the fact that Israel normalised relations with Arab countries also enabled new regional initiatives that could not could not have been conceived in the past. Uh, one of them is the Negev Forum. The Negev Forum uh, is an annual conference that took place for the first time in 2021. Uh, You have Israel joined by the US uh, and several Arab countries. So here you see on the picture Egypt, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, uh, and United Arab Emirates. The idea is to have a forum to discuss regional security issues. And that is quite unprecedented. To be a full stop, uh, you don't, you didn't have a forum like this uh, because uh, Arab countries, as I said before, didn't recognize Israel. But now you have this forum, uh, and it has several working-level committees uh, with diplomats from the foreign ministries of all these countries. Uh, meeting regularly to discuss uh, security issues in the region. And that is a a significant development. People, some critics say that we need to see if it can deliver on anything because uh, at the moment there has not been any concrete progress on, let's say, the Palestinian issue or terrorism issues uh, thanks to this Negev Forum. And for instance, Jordan refused uh, until today to uh, participate because it considers that it doesn't do enough on the Palestinian issue. But putting the critics aside, the very existence of this forum is an example of this new Middle East. This, the, the the other uh, byproduct, in a way, of the uh, Abraham Accords is I2U2. Uh, and I2U2 is an acronym that stands for uh, India, Israel United Arab Emirates uh, and United States that is a minilateral meaning that this is an ad hoc uh, uh, reunion of four countries this has this has been coined uh maybe for bad reasons the the quad of the middle east uh because you have uh, the United States and India uh What's interesting is that so far it m- focuses on mostly on economic issues, uh, because uh, Israel and the U- United Arab Emirates didn't feel comfortable with this idea of a Middle East squad. But again, here this is a format that could not have been conceivable without the Abraham Accords, because the Abraham Accords uh, normalized relations uh, between Israel. Uh, and UAE and even India, in a sense, uh, would not have been comfortable. Let's say two decades ago, being in a public format like this with Israel. So that's also part of this uh, new Middle East. Finally, with regards to Turkey, uh, Turkey uh, uh, at the time it it uh, restored its ties with Israel also decided to restore its ties uh, with what we call the Quartet which is uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain and Egypt. This is uh, the quartet or this group of countries that uh, implemented the blockade of Qatar, the Qatar which was supported by Turkey. And after the lifting uh, of the blockade, Turkey uh, decided to restore ties with uh, the quartet and in particular with Saudi Arabia, as you can see here. Uh, with a picture of the the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, The reason behind this reconciliation is primarily economic. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, you have a very very significant financial crisis in Turkey, and Turkey now uh, hopes, uh, through this reconciliation, to attract uh, investments uh, from Gulf countries, in particular from uh, UAE uh, and uh, uh, Saudi uh, Arabia. I'll stop here and uh, this is my last slide with uh, uh, the the five key uh, points that I'd like in a way uh, for you to remember from my presentation. The first one is that uh, we're currently uh, witnessing contentious uh, politics in both Israel, in Turkey, uh, the details of these uh, uh, these tensions uh, are different, uh, uh, but they crystallize in a way uh, around the figure of both leaders Erdogan and Netanyahu. Uh, but it's important to uh, uh, to see that uh, you have in both countries a trend towards illiberal practices, illiberal democracy. Uh, and that creates this uh, uh, idea of toxic uh, toxic domestic politics. Uh, you have also an important element, which is the presumption of bilateral relations uh, that happened uh, last year. Uh, but as I said, it's important to keep in mind the decade of disputes, because it will probably take time uh, to, uh, to see uh, both countries uh, really getting closer to each other. And one big test will be uh, the evolution of Turkey-Hamas relations. Uh, That's probably uh, something that is closely monitored uh, by Israel at the moment. Uh, The third point is that despite all the rhetorics, especially in the case of Turkey, uh, these are two countries uh, which are still primarily uh, investing on Western partnerships when it comes to their security policies. Uh, Turkey, as I said, is a NATO uh, member, and Israel uh, relies heavily on the U.S. Uh, for military assistance. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, Asia, and in particular China, uh, are not a part of the picture. Uh, we see uh, in both cases this process of foreign policy diversification towards Asia. Uh, this is important, uh, especially in the case of Turkey. Uh, Turkey has, uh, has been uh, increasing its engagement uh, with Asian countries uh, because of the tensions uh, with uh, the U.S. And the final point is that these are countries which are active players of the new Middle East architecture. I mentioned uh, uh, some of these initiatives, the Abraham Accords, the uh, Negev Forum, uh, and so uh, what's interesting is also to see uh, that they are players uh, in this ongoing movement of reconciliation and cooperation that we see uh, in the Middle East. It's an interesting development, but as I said, uh, there are questions, and certainties on uh, how far this, uh, this can go. Uh, let's keep in mind that historically uh, initiatives, regional initiatives in the Middle East have a tendency to fail. So we'll see if uh, those new uh, initiatives can uh, succeed where others uh, did not in the past. I'll stop here. I'm sorry for going over time. And I think we have time for the Q&A. Thank you. Uh, For the audience, uh,
0: now we enter into the question and the round. Please raise your hand and Let me know if you have any question for our uh, speaker.
2: My name is Jin Sok uh, from Energy Studies Institute, a research fellow. Um, As I'm an energy market researcher, I'd like to ask uh, is it possible the development of uh, Leviathan gas field in Israel and how it affects the relationship with uh, Turkey because I heard that they had plans that Israel and Turkey they I uh, developed. Uh, no, Israel, uh, Turkey wanted to import uh, natural gas from um, from Israel, and Israel has uh, many different plans: export to Egypt or export to to Turkey. And uh, I'm quite curious how this discussion development. I'm going how what the, the the development what you have mentioned is affecting um, this very important uh, gas project which is very, have a large volume of natural gas. Thank you very much.
1: Yes, uh, uh, thank you. This, this is a great question. And uh, uh, I, I uh, due to the time constraint, I didn't mention the, the gas issue, but that's, uh, that's a key element in the equation and especially in the last 10 years. Uh, so, uh, because it it started uh, in a very con- confrontational uh, situation. At first, uh, you had uh, Israel uh, s- joining uh, projects with Greece, Cyprus, uh, against uh, Turkey, uh, especially when it came to a um, uh, gas exploration uh, in the Cyprus uh, Cyprus. Uh, uh, economic, uh, exclusive economic zone which was challenged uh, by Turkey. So, for many years, uh, Israel and Turkey uh, were on opposite sides when it came to uh, gas uh, exploration in the East Mediterranean. More recently, uh, we saw, and we could argue that, that the Diplomatic reconciliation was also motivated by uh, common projects uh, in gas exploration, gas uh, uh, gas um, development, uh, because now uh, you have the East Mediterranean Gas Forum uh, that has been institutionalized, something that didn't exist 10 years ago when there was uh, this dispute, and uh, uh, we have to keep in mind that initially... Turkey sent uh, its uh, military ships to uh, to prevent uh, the Greeks, the, the Cypriots, the Israelis from uh, from uh, exploring uh, the gas uh, the gas fields. So now uh, it seems to be in a much uh, better, more much more positive environment. Uh, apart from that, I, I I could not give you the the last up to date uh, situation on the uh, let's say the, uh, the business side uh, but let's say that diplomatically uh, the situation has been uh, clarified because a lot of the issues at the diplomatic level related to the uh, the borders uh the border the maritime borders and how that affected uh, the possibility of gas exploration Last year, Israel also uh, found a way uh, to get an agreement with Lebanon because Lebanon was also uh, involved in these uh, discussions on gas. Uh, So, what we see at the moment is that with regards to gas in the East Mediterranean, the issue of uh, border disputes seems uh, more or less settled. Uh, Apart from that, with regards to the the business side, again, uh, my understanding is that the, the main actors, those that have the, the know-how are the Israelis, the Americans, uh, and sometimes some European companies. And that's one of the reasons Israel has been involved, uh, for instance, uh, in uh, the, uh, the gas projects of our country, such as Egypt. Uh, but it's definitely a good illustration that Common uh, interest uh, in in terms of energy uh, probably motivated uh, the reconciliation at the uh, the diplomatic level. To our own please. Uh. Sorry, you know there's a lot of um, speculations about how the Abraham Accords stand, and a lot of attention is on what Saudi would do and how that would. But how would the bilateral relations between Israel and Turkey, considering Turkey does have a bit of good influence in terms of the Islamic rich in Asia and all. So how do you think that relationship between Israel and Turkey could influence the extension of Abraham Accords? I don't think so far we saw uh, we saw Turkey uh, playing that role. Uh, a role of, um, let's say, enabler of uh, closer uh, relations between Israel and the Muslim world. Uh, well, one of the Obvious reasons is that you had the dispute between Israel and Turkey until last year. Uh, and there is still uncertainty how uh, how far uh, both countries can really cooperate. Uh, in a sense, it's easier to cooperate when you have shared interest on economy, on energy. On ideology, uh, it's more complicated because there's they're still there's still um, questions regarding uh, Turkey uh, and, let's say, uh, organizations close to the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the And actually, uh, Turkey has reduced a lot of the uh, presence of um, Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated organizations in Turkey since last year. But things are still to move on this. There's also the issue that uh, initially... Turkey had bad relations with the countries of the Abraham Accords. Uh, Turkey had uh, bad relations with the UAE until recently. Um, Keep in mind that the UAE, uh, as well as Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, uh, had demanded uh, the closure of the Turkish military base in Qatar at the time of the blockade in 2017. So it... It, it, it meant that Turkey doesn't really have uh, the ability to uh, influence uh, decisions uh, uh, for uh, Israel here, and also it relates again to something as I mentioned, like the, the mistress syndrome. Uh, the UAE and Bahrain uh, are are quite exceptional in a way, in the sense that they are very public and don't are quite comfortable with the idea of talking about their uh, relations with Israel and to promote their relations with Israel. Uh, But Turkey uh, has always uh, been much more ambivalent. As I said, there was uh, strategic military uh, consultations for decades, but Turkey had to cope with its population that was uh, very pro-Palestinian and uh, openly against uh, israel so i don't think they wanted to play any role in supporting uh, let's say uh, israel's relations with other uh, with other muslim countries there's the idea that turkey played a role in getting israel close to azerbaijan but it doesn't seem to be something uh, concrete uh, the, the israel azerbaijan relations uh, seem to be much more through the bilateral channel than through a Turkish uh, Turkish um, facilitator. So that's probably the reason why we don't see yet any uh, Turkish involvement on that. Thank you so much. Uh, OK,
0: please. Uh, okay. Hmm. Thank you. A very nice presentation. Uh, you know, from my very limited understanding of the Middle East, uh, you know, just uh, wanted to uh, know your views that, I mean, uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict, I mean, it's the defining, uh, you know, issue over there. So going forward, I mean, uh, do you see any... Progress in this uh, aspect, and I, I I believe it could have repercussions, you know, throughout the world, and especially
2: all types of relations.
1: That's a, a challenging question. You, I have to answer the Israel-Palestine uh, uh, question in uh, just a few minutes. The but no, more seriously, uh, it and it's important to ask the question because. Uh, too often uh, we forget that this this elephant in the room that the Israel Palestine conflict has not been solved. Um, in the current in the current environment, I'm uh, very pessimistic uh, for uh, for different reasons. Uh, but if I had to, to to give a simple answer, I would say that on both sides uh, the uh, the situation uh is definitely uh not favorable. Uh you have in Israel uh probably the most uh, uh far right government in the history of the country. Uh when you have um ministers such as uh, Itamar ben ben uh and even just the fact that we consider uh Benjamin Netanyahu as the the moderate uh, element in the government that tells you how uh, how uh, s- tough this government is. So clearly, there's no. Uh, I wouldn't expect uh, anything in terms of uh, of uh, progress on the Palestinian issue with that government. Uh, and we saw that they, even if even if uh, there is a hope for normalization with Saudi Arabia. I I doubt that this government with this current uh, uh, lineup uh, would be able, would accept any concession on Palestine. I don't think this government would say we accept a Palestinian state in exchange for uh, recognition with with Saudi Arabia. I don't think they will do that because that's not what their constituency would would accept. Uh, That's for Israel. But even with regards to, Palestinian situation, it's, uh, it's extremely uh, negative, because you have, on one hand, uh, the, 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 the Palestinian authority, which is in a terrible situation, it's extremely weak, uh, it's extremely unpopular. If we look at the polls, uh, it's considered, it's perceived as a corrupted organization. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas has been in power for two decades. Is uh, extremely old, actually, uh, and is is just not able to uh, to make uh, the decisions that would be uh, necessary uh, to put the Palestinian as uh, a credible interlocutor. Uh, and the other alternative, if it's not uh, if it's not uh, Abbas at the moment, is Hamas, and that's even worse. Uh, but that's uh, uh, that's the a worst-case scenario, which is unfortunately getting more likely each year. The fact that Hamas is powerful, not only just in Gaza, but is getting uh, uh, more powerful in uh, the West Bank. That would be a, a terrible scenario, because that—that that, uh, I don't think uh, having Netanyahu on one hand and uh, Hamas on the other hand, uh, we would see a, a, a new Oslo peace process. But that's the reason why... In the current situation, realistically, I don't think we'll we'll see anything new. Uh, The only thing we can hope is uh, the suspension of the the new settlements. Uh, That's a very low point in terms of expectations uh, because they announced new settlements, uh, which is also very uh, unprecedented in terms of the scale of the new settlements we're talking about. But the only thing we can expect is that uh, Netanyahu uh, does uh, not go further on this. Thank you so much. Uh, before we go further, uh,
0: I have a question uh, from an online audience on the same. I'll just read it verbatim uh, from Hanan. He asked, are we going to talk about Hamas and not apartheid Israel? Uh, is practicing on Palestinians. Uh, Before you answer this question, I I know for a fact that Iranians use this uh, word apartheid regime, you know, for Israel. Is there any other country which actually uses it? Or is it correct to use this term uh, for for Israel? Iranians use it all the time.
1: Wait, so the question relates to Hamas or to
0: uh, apartheid? uh, Basically, uh, the questioner has noted that we have talked about the missiles being fired from Hamas side. Maybe he is inquiring why you have not talked about the Israeli side, you know, uh, and their exigencies towards Palestinians. This is my inference to this question.
1: Okay, well, I mean, the the, the simple answer is uh, that I was talking about the perception uh, uh, seen from Israel. Uh, of course, I'm not uh, uh, saying that uh, you have. Uh, I wasn't making a normative statement. I was uh, explaining. Uh, that when you are in the position of Israel uh, you consider that uh, your major threat is rockets or missiles being fired from Gaza it doesn't justify uh the Israeli practices uh in uh, Gaza such as the naval blockade that, that i mentioned uh or uh, the restrictions on the liberty of movement and the uh, economic humanitarian uh humanitarian uh, um damages or consequences that are uh that are that comes with the israeli uh the israeli uh, policy uh at the same time uh israel is not technically occupying gaza uh, gaza is governed by hamas so a lot of the uh, the lot of the the, the uh, daily uh suffering from uh for the people in gaza comes also from hamas so it's not a situation where you have a uh, a good and a bad uh good uh, good uh, good player bad player uh, that doesn't play in the middle east
0: sure i hope hanan has been satisfied by your <laughs> answer and there's another question from an online audience saman omar has what implications do Israeli-Turkish ties have for U.S. interests in the Middle East? He is from Security Studies Research Researcher, Kurdistan Region of Iraq. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh.
1: Well, I mean the the hmm. response is uh, uh, simple in a way for the U.S. and actually on uh, both uh, Democrat and Republican administrations, uh, they historically saw both countries as their, um, their closest partners, uh, and in a way, bridges in uh, the Middle East. They, uh, as mentioned before, Turkey uh, became a NATO member in the 50s. So very quickly, uh, the US looked uh, at Turkey as one of its uh, anchors uh, for its Middle East uh, policy same thing uh for israel uh and it's a bipartisan uh perception they uh they they they, uh they consider that uh israel until today is a strategic partner meaning that there is a strategic value for washington to keep supporting uh israel and we saw that most recently with uh discussions during the, the 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 republican primary where there was uh a discussion about the relevance of uh, U.S. aid to uh, to Israel with candidates uh, which were strongly supporting that, saying that this is uh, a U.S. national interest. And in a way, just to go back to uh, the the initial question, this also explains, in the case of Turkey, why uh, the U.S. uh, decided uh, to uh, abandon, during the Trump administration, the Kurdish forces. Uh, Because at the end of the day, uh, there is this realistic, pragmatic um, view in Washington. And I think for the Biden administration, it's the same, that relations with Turkey, even though they are difficult with with Erdogan, they are more important than uh, supporting uh, Kurdish forces in Syria. So at the tactical level, uh, the U.S. uh, needed the, the Kurdish forces uh, but diplomatically, they, they wanted to uh, preserve their relations with Turkey. That's anyway you could say that's a very cynical game. Uh, but that that was the, the priority uh, seen from uh, the U.S. Per se- perspective. Great, uh, thank you.
0: Is there any other question from the audience side uh, from here? So let me just ask uh, maybe one final question because this uh, Israel and Palestinian issue, uh, you know, it's been very. Uh, sensitive one—the term that people use apartheid, things like that—is not actually appropriate. And uh, these are there are some countries who are specifically use when they are at war with this country, like as I said, Iran, which is not widely accepted this terminology. Uh, but uh, putting it in the broader context, this whole issue of Israel and Palestine, like Israelis, an ethnic minority, fighting for a statehood, and now they have attained the a state now palestinians again sort of minority they have also been fighting for the same cause and uh, trying or striving to attain a statehood now there's another uh, ethnic minority that is the kurdish and there's questioner from that region also and this actually percolates to the four countries syria iraq iran and and turkey so what do you see the future of the uh, of, of the the struggle of this kurdish uh, minority and uh, how does it impact the bilateral relationship between Israel and Turkey is, uh, you know, is there any dimension of this particular element uh, between Israel and Turkey, uh, this Kurdish issue?
1: Well, I mean, Israel, historically, Israel uh, had ties, uh, cultivated ties with uh, Kurdish uh, leadership, in particular in Iraq, Um, that, that was actually uh, as uh, old as in the 50s, uh, because as you mentioned, there was this there was this common perception that uh, uh, the Kurdish project uh, was similar to the uh, uh, Israeli project. So uh, there was, I would say, a combination of romanticism about uh, the commonalities between the Israelis and the Kurds, but at the same time there was strategic pragmatism because the Israelis thought. Uh, Supporting the Kurds uh, in Iraq, supporting the Christians in uh, uh, in Lebanon. Um, this was creating some kind of alliance of minorities in the in uh, the Middle East against the Muslim Arabs. Basically, that was the. So, uh, but apart from that, and there were uh, from time to time cooperation, military cooperation between Israel and the Kurds. I don't think this really reached the point of. Uh, creating tensions with turkey at least for the last decade i don't remember i don't recall a moment where israel's uh relations with the kurds which again are limited uh became uh an element of the dispute between uh between erdogan uh, and netanyahu uh this was more actually on the palestinian uh issue the the the, the, the real issue for uh, for Turkey uh, was uh, on Israel and Palestine. Uh, that I mentioned the Marmara situation, but relations uh, got also very tense because Turkey decided started to uh, become uh, an active player in Palestinian politics, supporting Hamas, and as a result condemned systematically any Israeli operation in uh, in the Palestinian territories. So. That that is more the uh, the issue at stake than the the Kurdish uh, issue. The the other question you had was with regards to the t- Kurdish project itself. Uh, well, I mean that I mean I'm, I don't want to uh, make uh, uh, bold predictions that, uh, and especially because we record that you could watch this in five years from now and uh, think that uh, this guy was really stupid. Uh, but. It doesn't seem again here also very pessimistic in a way. I don't see elements that go in the direction of uh, Kurdish independence. It, it, it's the, uh, if we look at the Iraqi uh, context, uh, which probably was the most encouraging one, the current situation uh, doesn't seem to be uh, favorable for that. So. Um, in Syria or Turkey, uh, uh, that's probably even worse. Um, but so that I I'm, I don't see any major uh, progress uh, on that. I know that for uh, obviously for Kurds, but also for uh, historians, scholars that have been working on this uh, for many years. This is a uh, uh, in a way some of one of the one of the many uh, one of the many tragedies of the Middle East. This minority. Uh, as we saw on the map, that has a very significant presence across four countries, with something that could uh, really be a, a country, uh, which until today, until two thousand twenty-three, has not even been able to uh, uh, to build that uh, na- national project. Uh, but yeah, I think there's combination of regional uh, regional interests, also fragmentation of Kurdish politics as well. Um, We're not talking about one Kurdish movement only. So I'll stop here. I'm sorry, I'm taking much too uh, long. Uh, Thank you so much. Let me just see if we
0: have any more questions. Okay, I have one. Uh, Since his re-election, President Erdogan has seemingly moved to a more conventional path in governance, returning to conventional economic theory, and slightly smoother ties with the U.S. Is this a blip or perhaps a reflection of something else? Slightly longer question.
1: Uh, It's, well, it's hard to say because the the election was uh, just a few weeks, a few months ago. So uh, it's it's hard to say if there's a shift in uh, Erdogan's uh, policy and attitude. Uh, The only thing uh, we know is that there have been hopes in the past that he would be more moderate and each time he actually uh, doubled down on his uh, uh assertive uh attitude uh there are signs for sure that he he seems more reasonable and he seems interested in uh, uh getting better ties uh with the US administration uh especially also because of the situation in Ukraine um the the gamble, in a way, uh, between the, the the Turkish gamble with Russia uh, on the S400 and on good relations diplomatically with Putin, uh, put him uh, put Erdogan in a odd situation after the Ukraine invasion. Uh, so I guess at the moment, and we saw that uh, with the, the ultimate decision not to block the uh, the membership of Sweden within NATO. Turkey uh, is also conveying the message that it it is not trying to uh, uh, put an end to its uh, uh, Western partnerships, and in particular to its relations uh, with the U.S. It doesn't change the fact that it's no longer part of the uh, F-35 program, which is a major loss for Turkey. Uh, It's a significant loss, not just Operationally for the uh, Turkish air force, but diplomatically, economically, this is a, a tremendous loss. Uh, but on other fi- on other fields, they, they try. They seem to uh, to uh, be in a uh, more moderate. But again, uh, we'll see uh, one or two years from now if uh, that's a real trend or if it was just um, uh, a short, temporary uh, uh, attitude from Erdogan. Uh, Thank you so much. I think
0: that should be it as far as question and answer rounds are concerned. Thank you so much for this uh, fascinating uh, learning journey. Dealing with non-Arab countries is actually very difficult, you know, I've been dealing with them (laughs) all the time. But you handled all the questions very well. Uh, And I thank everyone, uh, you as well as all the audience, uh, for participating in this uh, lecture. Uh, Especially I would thank uh, Aisha, Isha, and Sharon, their team, for putting the whole lecture together and i hope you all will continue to attend these lectures the next lecture is on climate change by uh, our colleague uh, aisha and uh, with that okay uh, on on wednesday we also have a book launch event of uh, the book that i mentioned right (laughs) (laughs) yes that's actually a very good book uh, on on the middle east security Uh, We we don't have such reasonable, uh, you know, dealing of this complex subject, the architecture that is actually so abstract, but somebody is dealing with that in a tangible format. So it will be a very interesting discussion. So with that, I thank you all once again.
2: Thank you so much. And from me, goodbye for now. Thank you.